I'm Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. With me today are the philosophers Kyle Frew and Marcus Hedal. Marcus Hedal is a professor at the United States Naval Academy, and he's got a disclaimer to share with us. The views expressed in this interview are the views of the authors alone. They do not express the official position of the U.S. Naval Academy, Duke Kusan University, the U.S. Navy, the Department of Defense, or any other entity within the U.S. government. And the authors are not authorized to provide any official position of those entities. Most of us probably think of war as a violent conflict between countries. There are aggressors and victims, and it's essentially a battle between groups of people. My guests today complicate this notion of war. They argue that many island nations around the world are currently in a war and fighting for their survival. And the enemy isn't other nation states, it's climate change. It really is a war of the strong against the weak. It really is a war in which we are forcing grave, grave injustices on those that that ought not suffer them, including our own children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Stay tuned for our discussion on today's episode of Examining Ethics. Kyle Frew and Marcus Hedal have been writing and thinking about climate change together for a few years now. My name is Kyle Frew. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Duke Kunshan University. And my name is Marcus Hedal, and I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the United States Naval Academy. In their paper, Climate Change is Unjust War, they take just war theory and use it to argue that we're in the middle of a battle for the Earth's future. They claim that potentially dangerous geoengineering projects like solar radiation management might be considered weapons in the fight against climate change. We'll get into just what solar radiation management is in a bit, but first let's kick off the interview with Kyle Frew explaining the role of just war theory in their argument. We take just war theory as a way of thinking about what it would mean for one state or a small group of states to engage in geoengineering all on their own without the consent or permission or approval of the rest of the international community. And the idea is that just war theory, we think, does provide a kind of justification for certain kinds of states anyway in certain conditions to go ahead and do that. So the big picture conclusion we're going for then is to say there's a kind of self-defense justification available to some states to engage in unilateral geoengineering, geoengineering without consent or permission of other states. And what that really means then is that climate change is like more traditional forms of aggressive, aggressive war. That's the real upshot of the paper for us is that the argument casts climate change itself in a new light where it's a moral equivalent of war, not in the William James sense. (laughs) So yeah, you're talking about a specific kind of geoengineering here, which is solar radiation management. And this is basically slowing the amount of solar radiation that can come into our atmosphere. And I wanted to know, first of all, just ethics wise, why are you focusing on this specific technology as opposed to like just geoengineering in general? So neither one of us is a climate scientist or for that matter, any other kind of scientist. (laughs) So uh, since we're both philosophers, our our real interest in this is sort of the moral argument end of it. So once the topic at hand was geoengineering, really our move was to follow the lead of other people who are more empirically invested and positioned in these kinds of conversations to look at what what was already under discussion 
Among geoengineering alternatives, the thing that at the time that we were working on this article was getting the most play was solar radiation management. And in particular, the injection of different kinds of particles into the stratosphere to deflect incoming solar radiation. My, my impression of that discussion is that it, that is still largely true, that that form of geoengineering is the most promising in terms of making a significant intervention in the climate system that would mitigate the effects of climate change. For our argument, it's important that there is a chance that the proposal is gonna work. And it has to also be the case that the proposal, for our argument to be interesting, I think it has to be the case that uh, it's not perfect. <laughs> um, you know, we have good assurances that those are uh, both solid assumptions. But anyway, that, that's why we ended up focusing on solar radiation management. Yeah, and the reason why solar radiation management resonates is because it's also clearly a global change. If you look at certain forms of carbon capture, they don't raise immediately the same kind of concerns in terms of doing them unilaterally. And so clearly solar radiation management and some of these other geoengineering techniques clearly raise those kinds of questions about under what circumstances can, if, it, if any, can you do them unilaterally? Right. Because they definitely impact other political systems, not just your own. I would say I'm a little bit naive when it comes to these big ideas about helping solve the problem of climate change. And so I was a little taken aback when I saw that you had classified SRMs as an act of war, because I think a lot of people, me included, think of climate change mitigation strategies as like, you know, hippie things are like really cool sciencey ideas. So why would an SRM or using an SRM be an act of war? First, we have to recognize we're only talking about unilateral deployment. So in some hypothetical Pollyannic world in which everybody agreed that they wanted to do this, every nation of the world, that might be a radically different story. But if you actually look at the history of just war theory, there's lots of considerations with respect to environmental degradation. Victoria argued that the causes of just war included damaging the environment. He gave examples of burning vineyards or olive groves. Grotius went even further, and he had this great analogy that poisoning the land is analogous to poisoning a person. And while poisoning a person invokes the right to defend within a community, poisoning the land triggers these kinds of environmental just war considerations. And in the 1970s, interestingly enough, in large part in response to the Vietnam War, there was a change in international law. There was a convention in 1977, um, the Environmental Modification Convention, in large part because people started thinking about these possibilities and recognizing that changing the climate, if you're Canada to make it warmer, might not be appropriate and might be tantamount to an act of war on another nation if it has those kinds of impacts where you're radically changing the way that they live. The thing we care about in climate change is obviously mean temperatures. The changes won't be uniform. And that's true in climate change, but it's also true in any intervention. The changes won't be uniform with that either. And so if there are some nations that would benefit and others that wouldn't, there are all kinds of concerns about doing this without that. That's why so many people in other literatures are talking so seriously about how do we build that kind of international consensus? Because without it, there are at least serious problems. Uh, and we think problems that rise to the level of an act of war. If an SRM does 
constitute an act of war, you, you both argue that we need to figure out if it's an unjust act of war or a just act of war. And I thought at this point in the conversation, it might be good to kind of briefly talk about unjust war versus just war. The inspiration to use just war theory as a, as a sort of framework for taking up this kind of question really was that apart from being a, a very longstanding tradition that lots of thinkers have contributed to, it's a body of thought that has gotten a lot of uptake, you know, into international law. It's a, you know, there's a pretty strong consensus around some, some aspects of just war theory. So it's a very powerful tool for assessing the ways that states incur on each other's sovereignty. That was sort of the idea, right? And unilaterally making a, you know, a serious intervention into the world's climate system is a very prominent way of interfering in other states' sovereignty, potentially. So the idea was, well, okay, let's see if just war theory would, what does just war theory put us in a position to say about that, right? For, for many kinds of uh, incursions into other states' sovereignty, right, just war theory doesn't have like a lot of nuanced answers to give, right? It's going to say most of the time, um, the thing that allows you to go ahead and do that, to use force and, and intervene in other state sovereignty is one thing only. There's only one kind of justification available, and that's self-defense. And every other kind of justification isn't going to work. So for our argument, the only kind of justification on the table was going to be, can the case be made that some states could engage in unilateral geoengineering in self-defense? At this point in the conversation, I'm sort of understanding that, but I'm still, I still maybe have a sort of naive view of war in general, like bad guy invades uh, innocent country. And so innocent country can defend themselves. And so in this case, you know, it's climate change versus an island nation, say, that will literally disappear if the world gets any warmer. And so they're justified in using SRM because it's self-defense. But like, I still kind of don't understand how there, there are any intentions on the, the climate change side, right? Because it's, yeah. if it's capitalists, they just want to make money. They're not trying to drown island nations. If we look at just war theory itself, it turns out intention doesn't matter that much there either. And so there's two kinds of cases in which we think nations can have a just cause to go to war even without intentions. So one is a case in which independent of climate change, we think climate change is another area perhaps, but independent of climate change, you can look at negligence. So if a country was really negligent with let's say its control of its nuclear weapons, a lot of people think that that might give someone uh, an opportunity. So they're putting them at threat, not intentionally, they're not trying to intentionally harm them. It's actually a negligent kind of threat, but you might still think that that allows for the use of force at times. It might be more limited because it's not intentional in the same way, but it still allows for that kind of intervention, right? We see a similar kind of line when you think about unstable states. So the justification, if one can be given at all for military actions in failed states, is not that these states are intending harm to other nations. On the contrary, it's that individuals within those states are intending harm and the state itself can't bring that to bear. And by, by bring that to bear, I mean, can't control it, right? Can't punish the people that are trying to harm those outside of its borders. So if a state can do that, it's much harder to justify going in and stopping individuals that might wish your nation or, or want to do harm on them. But it's 
precisely the inability to form any intention on the part of the state to, to bring that down. Once again, it's the threat itself that justifies that. We see this as well, and I think this is really important. If you look at the history of the just war tradition, at the beginning, a lot of times people thought punishment was an appropriate reason to go to war or an appropriate end of a war to punish a state or to punish a leader. But if you think about the severe and significant damage done in war, the idea that, that what we're doing there is punishing has really fallen out of favor over the last 300 years. And that we think demonstrates as well that what we're talking about when we're talking about justifying war is the threat itself and not the intention behind it. Now, obviously that if someone has an intention to threaten a nation like the current situation in the Ukraine, you might think that that threat is, is much more live, is much more real, but it's the threat itself that matters for a just cause or for a just war, not the intention. I sort of briefly alluded to it, but I realized that we haven't quite outlined what the threat would be. So I wonder if you could give us maybe a concrete example of a place in the world or a country that is is right now threatened by climate change. Our argument is focused exclusively on states that face what you might think of as the most extreme possible threat through the effects of climate change. So we're not talking about states that face, you know, drought or coastal erosion or a lot of, you know, domestic migration or many of the other kinds of bad things that might happen as a result of climate change. Our argument is is really limited to a small number of states that actually face extinction through the effects of climate change. For the most part, that means what we're talking about is states whose territory is entirely comprised of low-lying land. So we're talking about, for the most part, small states, Pacific Island states like Tuvalu, Kiribati, Vanuatu, places that if climate change continues, will face extinction. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the sort of dramatic version of this is that they'll disappear because sea level rise will just swallow them up. That might well happen, but even, I mean, way before that happens, they'll become uninhabitable, right? They don't have to literally disappear to become places that can no longer be states. And maybe the most acute pressure would end up being, you know, freshwater resources. There are some other places outside of the Pacific that face this danger too. The Maldives are comprised of very low lying land. Bangladesh has been given a lot of attention because some of it, so much of its territory is low, but uh, as far as I can tell, it's not literally going to cease to exist or have territory. Uh, so, so for the most part, we're talking about small island states. And, and it's important because those are the places that can avail themselves of the, the kind of rationale that we're providing, namely self-defense, right? Where they're literally defending themselves against no longer existing. And, and other states, obviously it's worth discussing bad things that are going to happen in other states. They don't figure in this, in this kind of argument exactly. I also feel like we haven't sufficiently talked about like what are what are the risks of SRMs, right? Because in my mind right now, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, the citizens of Tuvalu are justified in deploying SRMs and why are they so bad anyway? So I think there's a lot to say about this. I mean, if we were really, if anyone was going to really try to do this in a way that would be meaningful, in a way that would stand a chance of making a difference in the effects of climate change. I mean, we're talking about a global intervention in the climate system of a completely unprecedented kind. Now, I mean, the only available precedent is the, <laughs> the process by which we've created climate change in the first place. But that, of course, was quite an accident. Trying to do it in an orchestrated way to achieve particular results is, is not something that we've ever done anything like. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty about our ability to do that. 
Um, some of the really big categories of worry include something called termination shock, which is the idea that once you start loading the atmosphere with these uh, particles, you're committed to continuing to do it because if you stop and they all drop out of the atmosphere at once, then you would get really, really extremely rapid climate change that would be disastrous for everybody. So if you're gonna start doing it, you're sort of on the hook for continuing to do it and continuing to control it in a stable way for probably a pretty long time. And you, know, you might think, well, is that something that human society is capable of committing to like a 150, 200 year plan to do something? I don't know. That's, so that's one category of worry. Another category of worry is sort of a moral hazard kind of worry that if this kind of technology comes online, what that means is that everyone's gonna say, well, no longer any need to worry about our emissions. So smoke them if you got them. And then we actually won't solve the problem in some ways, maybe we'll even make it worse because of course, solar radiation management doesn't compensate for all the effects of climate change, like ocean acidification, for example, right, is not addressed by this. Another kind of worry is just sort of within the sort of empirical uncertainty that attends any kind of geoengineering proposal is, you know, as Marcus mentioned earlier, the effects aren't just even, right? And so depending on how much of what kind of particle you inject, where the injection sites are, and how that's all managed, you might get very different effects in different parts of the world. And on some proposals, you know, some of the models suggest that it's just, it's not even possible to do this in a way that's going to get uniformly good effects. You're either going to make some places too warm, you're going to affect precipitation patterns, or you're going to make some places too cold. So it seems like on any geoengineering proposal, on any solar radiation management proposal anyway, you're going to get what we would call in some cases anyway, winners and losers, right? not everyone's going to come out. It's not just a big, happy thing where everyone wins. People in different parts of the world will face different repercussions. So yeah, then how is it possible to justify using SRM specifically as an act of just war? The interesting thing about just war is it changes the framework and the and the lens from which you, you look at the problem, right? So the way most people consider geoengineering proposals is from kind of an objective standpoint of all people. And, and that's an important aspect. But as well, if you think about it from the point of view of countries that are going to cease to exist, you might think that they are allowed to take certain risks because of that fact, especially if they aren't guilty of the problem, right? So uh, Vanuatu, which is one of the places that that Kyle mentioned, right? orders and orders and orders of magnitude less in terms of contributions to the problem than other nations. And so you might think if you go through the kind of traditional just war proposal, if there is a a cause that's just, if there's a threat to them that is significant, if they are a legitimate authority, if they have the ability to speak for a nation, if it is a last resort, And while it may perhaps not be there yet, I would think that we're getting to the point of last resort, that given the kind of inaction at an international level for 30 plus years, um, at some point, surely, um, these nations might be able to appeal to some sort of means as saying that we've, we've tried everything else. And then there has to be a reasonable hope of success. It has to be proportional. The the threat that they're posing to others has to be proportional to the threat posed to them. And we think all of these criteria can be met, maybe not right at this moment, given the current stage of technology and given the current risks. But at the very least, it seems to us that those nations are going to be justified in appealing to this kind of move 
before it would be justified from a purely objective point of view. And it certainly seems that that time could come in the very near future. So really, like the basic idea is that uh, there's a bunch of states sitting around who haven't really contributed to creating a problem of climate change at all, and who nonetheless are looking at a future in which they no longer are states because of the effects of climate change, right? And so the idea is from their point of view, so we argue, they look at the rest of the world and say, you guys are the ones creating this problem for us. You guys are the ones declining to do anything about it now for a long time. So listen, we're going, to take, we're going to take it into our own hands and do something about this, right? Now, when we do something about it, it's not just going to make everything better for everyone. Fine. Uh, some of you are going to be made worse off by this, but you know what? That's a cost you have to bear because it's not the cost that we face. The cost we face is that we no longer exist. You know, the core thing that Just War Theory captures and, and honors, right, is that, you know, states have a right to defend themselves in this way from, th- from external threats. And if in defending yourself, you, you make some other uh, states, parties worse off, okay, you have to attend to that for sure. You can't be reckless, right? But as long as other states through the geoengineering aren't facing extinction, right, then the threat that's headed off by using the geoengineering is, this, is the greater threat and, and they can defend themselves against. I think anytime, unfortunately, anytime we're talking about aggressors versus victims, especially geopolitically, there's always somebody who says, well, why can't they just move, right? What would you say to to people who make that kind of argument? I mean, I think we all understand the importance of our culture, our place, like our society, our government. There is an important aspect in which we care about individuals and we care about individual flourishing and suffering. But at the same point, that individual suffering and flourishing is always rooted within a community, both political and social and geographic. Uh, I don't know how the Maldives keep their community if they're in Colorado. It just seems to be not the kind of place where they can have the community that they have now. And so is that worth everything? No, at some point, if the only way you could save that was, was so damaging, obviously you would say that they would have to suffer that fate. But it's unclear to us that that's necessarily always the case. And it would allow for some actions that otherwise wouldn't be to protect to protect a way of life. And it's, and it's super clear in this kind of case, right? I mean, we're talking about political communities, states that are very small, that are very powerless, right, on the international stage. And the great thing about just war theory, though, right, is that it protects sovereignty, regardless of how powerful a state you are, right? So the idea that I think behind this impulse that like, well, you know, they'll have to find somewhere else to carry on because the islands aren't going to work anymore. There's a there's an ease in that suggestion that comes because we know sitting here in the United States or you know in, in whatever other powerful countries that are big emitters that these countries these states will never be able to force us into anything. But that's that's just a, a power relation. That's neither here nor there with respect to what would be just. It's very easy to overlook that, you know, these islands have been, you know, durable homes for people and cultures and communities for a very long time. And that is something that we in creating climate change are taking away. And to suggest that like, well, you know, find a new place, right? (laughs) That's just an imposition of power. And that's not a moral argument. I found this idea that climate change is war so provocative um, and just such an interesting way of thinking about climate change. You know, the end of your piece left me thinking, what would my role be or what would any individual's role be? Because, you know, when the Iraq war started, 
as a citizen of the United States, as a citizen of the aggressor country, I felt like if I was against it, I could sort of do certain things like protest or write to my senators or whatever. And I feel sort of like maybe if you live in the States, you're in the aggressor position, right? Because we're, we're such big emitters. So how, how should we maybe reframe the way we think of ourselves as individuals if we're thinking about climate change as war? I think it's even stronger than that. So I will say I've talked to people who don't share the power of this intuition, but I was not merely a citizen in 2003. I was on active duty military. And to be complicit in what I felt was an unjust war was much more powerful for me than to be complicit in other injustices. I recognize I'm complicit with a host of injustices because I participate in a host of different things. But but to wear the uniform and to be complicit in a war that that I knew in my heart of hearts was unjust was a different kind of feeling. And if we say that by participating in climate change, we're much more like soldiers participating in unjust war than we are in participating in other kinds of injustices. For me, that's a much more stronger kind of pull and it requires much more action on my part to try to do all I can to both stop that injustice and try to make whole those who have been harmed by it. Now, everyone may not share that intuition, but thinking of ourselves as soldiers in an unjust war, I think is a really powerful notion. And if we think about our relationship to climate change that way, I think it's a, it's a way that for me changes completely the way I think about the problem. That may not be true for other people, but I certainly know a lot of military members who have believed at one time and the other that uh, a war their nation was fighting and was unjust. And the kind of moral injury and moral stain of that is people in the military just talk about that differently than they talk about other injustices that they recognize they're complicit with. And that's the goal is to, is to maybe make us to think about it that way, right? That it really is a war against, of the strong against the weak. It really is a war in which we are forcing grave, grave injustices on, on those that, that, that ought not suffer them, including our own children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. You know, the, the, the argument taken in this paper really doesn't address individuals, right? We're, we're trying to cast climate change in a new light, mostly thinking, you know, states are the ones who um, engage in behaviors that are acts of war. So this is a great question, right? Like, what, what are the implications for us as individuals? And, and this idea of complicity seems like that's, that's where all the questions are. And I think, and, you know, in some ways, this is like, the question of contemporary human life is like, how do we, we're, we're all entangled in so many arrangements, systems, economies that have morally problematic elements. How, how do we manage that? What, what are we supposed to do about that? And, and those are definitely not questions that we even try to answer in this paper. But I think asking them and asking them in this particular light that Marcus was talking about, is like, what, what would you do if you were a soldier who is fighting in a war that you knew was unjust. That's a different way of thinking about what is my place in trying to move towards meaningful climate action. And so I think that's the direction we're certainly interested in pushing, but it's not something that we undertake as part of this argument very explicitly. Why do you care about this? How did you come to this work? We, so we, we were in graduate school together in philosophy and both had an interest in environmental stuff and 
climate change was a place where our different sort of moral theoretical interests really seemed to come together. We, we both got turned on to sort of like the really extreme end of what of what climate change is going to mean for some places, right? And, and we were both looking for ways to think about what do we do with this, uh, that things are going to be so bad for some places. We were sort of already in a mode of thinking together and working together about things and, and um, those conversations just sort of found their way into this argument. This problem is the defining issue of our generation and maybe several generations. You know, I saw a meme recently that was like, uh, it was the horror on the look of kids in, in 2060 when they looked at like, when they studied history in 2020. And I thought that it got totally backwards, right? That, that what we've seen in the last few years is nothing compared to what we're going to see in, in years to come. And I, I spent a year of my life working on this issue with the Mary Robinson Foundation for Climate Justice. And I think anyone that does that for any significant amount of time becomes convinced more and more of the significance of this issue. And there's not much we can do as philosophers. The one thing, Kyle and I, if we can do any small part, it's if we can change the frame in which people look at something. And I think when we both realized that, that we thought that this was, this was actually not just a metaphorical frame, but a quite literal frame that climate change actually is unjust war, um, that maybe that is a small, very small part that we could do. Because as Kyle says, we're not scientists, right? I can't go out there and, and, and make things better right away. And I'm certainly not uh, at the levels of policy. As the disclaimer says at the beginning, right? Um, I can't change US policy. I can't speak for the government. But if this really is, this dwarfs all other problems that we face, then we need to change the way we think about it. And hopefully, maybe, maybe our work can do some very small part in doing that. If you want to know more about Marcus Hedal and Kyle Frew's other work, check out our show notes page at examiningethics.org. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brocious. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.